I remember during the the residency, the first part of the residency, wondering, okay, how am I going to put this into movement? How is this going to translate into movement that the audience will receive and not fall asleep? Or I don't want it to be too, yeah, I don't want it to be too mental, cerebral, or I don't want it to be too meditative. Uh, I want there to be, I want it to be beautiful and provoking and stimulating. For this special issue, Coast to Coast takes a step aside and meets a generation of artists and choreographers driven by the desire to create a more inclusive and diverse dance scene. Here they look back on their journeys, their research and their ideas. Their visits were supported by Villa Albertine, which has connected French talents and the American cultural scene since 2021. I'm Rosalind Sulkis, and you are listening to a special Coast to Coast episode dedicated to Albertine dance season podcast series produced by Villa Albertine and Paradiso Media. Our guest today is the dancer and choreographer Wanjiru Kamuyu. Wanjiru Kamuyu was born and raised in Nairobi, Kenya, and studied ballet there before moving to Michigan in the United States with her family when she was 16. There, she discovered modern and contemporary dance, and after her university studies, she began her professional career as a dancer in New York performing with a variety of companies, as well as on Broadway. She moved to France in 2007, founded her own company, WK Collective, in 2009, and today is an associate artist with Théâtre Londres in Vélizy Villa Coublé, and an artist-in-residence with New York Live Arts. Her residency with Villa Albertine has allowed Wanjiru and the dramaturg Dirk Corel to travel to a number of cities in the United States to research her ancestry and what she eloquently describes as the idea of the body as a container, a museum, a guardian of our lived and inherited experiences. Wanjiru, welcome. And it's lovely to talk to you today about your Villa Albertine residency. Thanks for having me. I'm so curious to hear more about your research. But since the project is such a personal one, so much about your identity, I wonder if you could tell us a little about your experiences of growing up in Kenya and then moving to the U.S. at 16 and what those sorts of cultural differences were like. Growing up in Kenya was a space in which I felt um, self-validated and affirmed, self-affirmed, because everyone, majority of the people looked like me. Everyone could pronounce my name. We spoke common languages, space and time and food and song and dance were shared. And then coming to the U.S. was a shock to my system in many ways because there was uh, confrontation of stereotypes and ignorance around the continent of Africa. And in the U.S., I quickly was taught that I, be, with the brown skin that I am enveloped in, that I am identified as black. And I grew up at a time in Kenya where the word black was just never used. Um, we have a word called mzungu, but mzungu, yes, it's white, but it also means foreigner, because when I go home now, I'm called mzungu. But in the U.S. is where I was racialized really quickly and realized that I was in a minority. And I remember asking my mother, I said, like, I don't understand what this word black means. What do people mean? And she said, well, you know, welcome to the United States, uh, my dear. And I said, but what does it mean? Me, I'm Kikuyu. I'm African-American. I'm a female. I'm, you know, I'm a dancer. I mean, like, what does it mean? Is it the color of my skin? And she said, yes. And I said, well, I'm brown. And I laughed at that. <laughs> It seems, looking at your work, that 
these ideas about identity, about race have always been at the center. Was Were these experiences, these different cultural experiences, what prompted you to begin to choreograph? Or did you always know you wanted to choreograph? I actually didn't always know I wanted to choreograph. I went to school, to, to Temple University, got my master's in performance and choreography, but my actual goal was to perform. So I did the choreography because it came with the track, the degree track. I was like, okay, I'll just do it. But I really was really focused on performing. So I really had targeted a few companies that I really wanted to perform with. And then slowly with my tenure with Urban Bushelman, which was my first big contract in New York City, I started to dive into more and more the desire to create. And I had an opportunity through an Urban Bushwoman to present my work in New York in a small little festival. And I think that's where the bug then settled in my spirit. But I toured a lot as an interprète, as they say in France, as a dancer. Um, but I always on the side, then after that bug was initiated into my spirit, began to create on the side parallel to my touring as a performer. You worked with Dirk Correll on your solo immigrant story in 2020. And for that, you interviewed many people about their experiences. It sounds like perhaps that was the origin of this larger idea that you're now exploring in the Villa Albertine residency. No, that's very correct. It came really out. Fragments was birthed out of an immigrant story. We call an immigrant story the macro story, and then we call fragments the micro story. Um, because an immigrant story, the COVID confined me, allowed me to actually collect more stories than I ever envisioned. And so I collected 19 stories of a different horizon of different uh, immigrants, expats, floaters, nomads, refugees of all sorts, people who moved within their own country, across borders, across oceans. And then some of the stories have really resonated at me and made me start to think about the question of how those stories are imprinted in our being and how some of those stories can literally in due time create dis-ease in our body or maladie in our body and how can we use dance as a healing tool to go into those spaces and to create some breath and space and try and touch some kind of liberation, some type of healing work in our body through moving. So for Fragments, this current project, you have already gone to Washington, Philadelphia and New York City to carry out research. And later this month, I think you are heading back to continue research in Boston and New York. Why these cities? These cities because I know that my maternal family, my mom's African-American, has traces in New York City. We have family traces in the D.C., Virginia, Maryland area, and Philadelphia because it was also a huge stop on the Underground Railroad. And so with that southern to north migration, my family was very much a part of that. And Boston does have a port and a, a deep history with slavery and enslavement, and also abolitionist work. So, yeah, so those are why the cities were chosen. What is the actual, how, how have you proceeded with the actual research? Is it extremely personal about your own family? Is it broader? What sorts of people have you interviewed and talked to? Um, it is about my ancestral memories, but it, it's coming from a much broader space because I have talked to scholars and poets and choreographers about their process, somatic practitioners about their process into works like this, diving into the body of an archive. I talked to epigenetic scientists at John Hopkins as well about that, the scientific end of things and the transmission generation to generation. 
And uh, I've gleaned in on that and learned a lot from that as well. I actually had to look up epigenetic this morning when I was <laughs> reading your manifesto about your work. So maybe explain a little bit. It's fascinating. Explain a little bit about what epigenetics is. Well, epigenetics really is the the study of how an organism changes and is modified, the gene expression is modified. And there's been studies around peoples who have faced trauma and how their cellular memory, their cellular body makeup has modified in order to cope with the trauma that they're receiving. And the question I had for them was, is it true that this then goes from generation to generation, as I have read in research, particularly around Holocaust survivors, and that it's been traced down generation to generation? And epigenetics is a, is a, is a relatively new form of research. So it's about 100 years old. So scientists, are, some say, yes, it's transgenerational. Others are like, we're on the fence. We're not sure. It's, you know, it's too early to tell. But I mean, looking at the African-American experience and our health issues as a general scope or, or, or perspective, and looking at that which I researched around Holocaust survivals, it seems to me that it would make perfect sense that it's transgenerational. And then the question is, how do you break that cycle? And you can, how can you remodify that cellular uh, body so that it can go back to what we identify as healthy? And that is through a lifestyle changes, including physical activity, meditation, movement. Dance. A dance. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I interrupted, I interrupted your account of what kinds of people you've, you spoke to. Would you go on with that a little bit? Who, who did you talk to in, in these different cities? Well, I talked to epigenetics scientists, a slew of them, from John Hopkins. And actually, it was Dr. Peter Abadir who really got me on the track with talking to a bunch of his colleagues at John Hopkins. I also talked to uh, people at the Global Lab Initiative at Georgetown, which deals with art making, theater making, particularly around trauma and, and, and the body. Uh, it's called the Laboratory for Global Performance and Politics with Emma Jaster. And uh, I also spoke to Derek Goldman. Talked to, to them. I talked to Anita Gonzalez, who is working in the Racial in Initiative program at Georgetown as well. Uh, she's a former urban bushwoman as well, and her work deals around identity and histories around identity. I also talked to Fred Moten, who's a poet and who is actually a professor at New York University. And Nia Love, who's a choreographer out of New York, who's working around the same issues as I am uh, from a different angle. And also I was in, in conversation with Patricia McGregor, who is also the director at uh, theater, New York Theatre Workshop. And uh, she's a director in her own right as well around her work and how she enters the space with such investigations. So I talked to a slew of people and then... I also visited museums, the African American Museum in DC, the Underground Railroad stations in Philadelphia. I visited one in particular, which was really, really quite moving because I was able to actually sit and stand in space where the enslaved who were running for freedom were situated. And that was really thanks to Jermaine Ingram, who is a dancer out of um, Philadelphia, who linked me uh, to this home, the, the Johnson House. And so I had a private tour, which was really, really good. Yeah. 
it was a really full and intense uh, first stage of research. And then now when I go to Boston, I, I will continue the same route. And then when I, because I do Boston and New York. So New York, I will be at Chatham and I'll actually be in a studio rolling around and trying to do the finishing touches on fragments. And in Boston, I will be visiting and, and, and meeting with people. Well, that brings me to a question that I have for you, which is how do you move from these hundreds of hours of interviews of incredibly varied perspectives and history to an actual somatic bodily experience? Or, or to put it more simply, how do you transform that into a dance? Yeah, I remember talking to my mentor, one of my mentors, Brenda Dixon, Dr. Brenda Dixon, godchild, when I was in New York the for the research. And I remember telling her, I think I'm oversaturated with research now. I need to like put a cap on it and I need to go into the studio. And going into the studio, I, I use the information as a springboard and then, and then I explore. So I also had conversation with, her name is Rashida Bumbry. And she is a, she's a choreographer, dancer, who works with the ring shout, which comes out of the African-American experience, particularly during the, the period of slavery. And this tradition continues into our worship of today. So, and I remember during the, the residency, the first part of the residency, wondering, okay, how am I going to put this into movement? How is this going to translate into movement? that the audience will receive and not fall asleep or you know, I don't want it to be too, yeah, I don't want it to be too mental, cerebral, or I don't want it to be too meditative. Uh, I want there to be, I want it to be beautiful and provoking and stimulating. And there, the ring shout kept coming back to me as one source of material to pull upon. And shaking is one that I really uh, thought about. And spinning was another that I thought about. And elements, earth, fire, metal, air, water, became substance for me to dive into physically. How do you and Dirk work together? Is he involved in this part of the process? Yeah, Dick is he's the dramaturg for Fragments as well. And I also have a choreographic outside Gordon Steph who works with me as well. So with the two of them we're able to dig into the work and to sieve things out and edit things, add or shape them accordingly. So definitely he's a part of the process. What will the shape of fragments be, ideally, for you? I've seen, I think you mentioned it, it could be a trio work for the stage. You hope perhaps there might be a film part two. What would you like it to be? I would like fragments uh, to exist on the stage as a trio, myself included, with Elodie Paul and Sherwood Chen performing, and in a space that's also enveloped with a decor that has been created by Burkett Nepple. And then existing in its stage form with music lights and everything. And then I would love for it to also take form as a, a dance short. Ideally, I would love to work with Tommy Pascal again, who I worked with on a dance short inspired by an immigrant story called La Visite. And I would love to work with Tommy Pascal again. So, yeah. But the stage version has music by Like Homo Boy and lights by Serene Moulin. So that's quite thought out already. You have the sense of it, the shape of it. Yes, yes. How do you work with other dancers? You've mentioned the two other dancers who you'll perform with in Fragments in the trio. How do you work with 
other dancers on these very personal experiences that you are evoking through your research? It's been a journey and it's been not been an easy journey. It's been quite stressful on some level as well because I have worked with groups before, but it's in a different way. I've worked with groups because of funding and the lack of funding. I've done a lot of solo work. So the group work I do is with universities and in the U.S. particularly. So I come in, the piece is already done. I'm just transforming it onto a group of people and I just give them what it is. So coming into here, into doing fragments with these particular dancers, and I know I wanted something, I wanted to pull from them very personal information or experiences or sensations and emotions. I decided to really dive in into a whole new process for myself uh, as well. So I've desired to pull movement out of their body and to, to also shape the work using their vocabulary, their movement vocabulary, their movement textures, and weaving that into the work as well. So, and being tr quite attentive to who they are as movers and who they are as human beings. But what I envisioned for the work originally in my mind is actually taking a whole nother direction and it's a, a nice direction i'm enjoying it but yes i i can't lie that it's, it's not easy stressful and <laughs> it's not it's like super easy no it's not but it's good because it's a really good learning curve and it's also really nourishing me as a choreographer and as a creative being wonderful and i have really beautiful dancers with me who just who are just fully committed and invested in the project and i couldn't ask for more well, it sounds wonderful. And I want to ask you one last question, which is a broader question about how you've experienced, particularly as you've undertaken this research, both for an immigrant story and for fragments, how you've experienced different approaches to race, migration, identity, racial identity in the U.S. as opposed to Europe. Well, I can say that in the U.S., we are confronting and trying to treat the issues of race and racism and race relation. And in France, I find that things are put underneath the carpet and there's denial about the existence of racism in this country. And I think it also has to do with both countries having very different relationships to race. So I think that also plays with the relationship dynamic. And in France, there being this notion and belief, and I think hope of a universalism that exists and everyone is the same and colorblind and no one sees color and that we're all French. And to identify other than French is, okay, now it's being looked at with much more positive eyes, but at one point, apparently, it was not looked at with very positive eyes. So in, and in the U.S., there's, it's because of the history of slavery and segregation and Jim Crow, etc., the, the dynamic is very different between groups. And I think that in the States, we just confront it head on. And culturally, the Anglophone and Francophone cultures, when it comes to directness, is just dealt with differently in, in, in depending on what we're, we're confronting. So, yeah, I've just found to be frustrated in many ways in France due to the denial I must say that people are now taking more risks in speaking about these issues. And in the U.S., on the other hand, also coming from my Kenyan eyes, there is a, a, a sense of exhaustion for myself uh, that tends to be, and it's a very gross generalization, that anything that happens that has two different bodies in the room with two different skin colors, that then the race card is pulled up really quickly. 
and I find it to be a crutch. Sometimes if we really just look at the situation, it's just, it's nothing to do with race. It's just, it's just people humans being human than mean or ignorant. So sometimes I think it's a bit, it can be too intense. So it's just trying to find that balance. But both societies need to continue to dig deep and bring out their their skeletons in their closet and deal with it head on. Which in a way is what you're doing in Fragments, isn't it? And in an immigrant story, you're unearthing those skeletons in the closet. Exactly, because I think if we don't deal with them, we'll never heal. We say we want to heal, but how are we healing if we don't deal with it head on? You have to accept. You have to get out of denial and accept and stop trying to cover things up. Wanjiru, thank you very much. It's been fascinating to talk to you about your research and about fragments and wishing you the best of luck for the continuing process and the final piece. Thank you so much. It's been a joy speaking to you as well. Thank you for this opportunity to bring light to my work. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast, a Villa Albertine podcast produced by Paradiso Media and hosted by Rosalind Sulkis. If you want to learn more about the residents of Villa Albertine, listen to our interviews wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our channel, States. If you liked it, leave a rating and spread the word. You can also follow us on social media and click on the link in the description of the episode.